Romans chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters that you can ever read. It starts with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. Many would say it's the high point of Paul's inspired writings. I want you please to turn to Romans chapter 8 with me today as we continue our series in the book that has been called Good, Glad and Merry Tidings. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Before we talk about this today, I want to make some comments which are close to my heart and I think will be close to your heart too. The gospel is a strange thing. It's like the word love. It's used over and over again. People talk about the gospel, but most people do not understand what the gospel means. Most people have never experienced the gospel. Therefore, just to talk about the gospel is, doesn't mean a great deal. Before a person can understand the gospel, he must experience the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel must be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Every person here today has a knowledge of the law. We're born with a knowledge of the law of God. But nobody is born with any knowledge at all of grace or the gospel. A little while ago, I heard a story that just about broke me up. I'll camouflage the story because it is so sensitive, I'll have to camouflage it so that when people see it, or hear it throughout North America, they won't know whom I'm speaking of. It was told to me by a lady, and she told me what happened to her in a so-called Christian home when she was a little girl. She was one of, I think, 11 or 13 children. Her father was a strong church member. He was so strong about church that he regularly paid his tithe. He went to church every Sabbath. He had a great custom when they ate. They said grace, of course, before they ate. But then he opened up the Bible and he read and read to them from the Bible. But if the mother should say, after he'd read on for time after time, the children are hungry, then he would start to lose his temper and to beat her and to beat the children. He was a great churchgoer. On one occasion, after she'd had a child, I don't know whether it was 11 or 12 or 13, the child was only three weeks old. This girl, who was then 12, came upon the father beating his wife and bashing her and got her down and started to stomp on her. Beat her, thrashed her, cursed her but all the time went to church, paid his tithe, kept the Sabbath and said, I'm a Christian. And this is what Christianity is all about. This little girl was beaten and bashed and knocked around. She said on one occasion, she remembers seeing her mother so attacked by her husband that there was blood running down from her eye, running down on her dress. He did this all in the name of Jesus. On one occasion, this lady told me when she was a little girl, she said she would never cry when her father beat her because she wouldn't give him the joy of seeing her cry. On one occasion, she was being beaten and kicked. He'd, he'd get the kids down and kick them around the floor, smash them while he paid his tithe and went to church. 
And the mother ran in and threw herself between this devil and the daughter and took the beating for the girl. The girl told me this week then she came to understand how Jesus was beaten for us. When I heard the story, please forgive my strong feelings on this, I thought to myself, please forgive me, I hope he goes to hell. But he didn't go to hell, he came to this church. And he got converted. <laughs> he got converted. Now he watches the videotapes. Now you won't know who he is because he came in like a stranger. He no longer comes here. But he came to this church. He hated my sermons. He hated my sermons because I spoke about self-righteousness. And that is the worst sin. He sat there and he hated me. And he hated the church services. But the Spirit of God got through to his heart. And this man is now a born-again Christian and his life is changed. Amen. All I can say to you, a person has got to believe in grace. If God can save that waster, that humbug, that old pervert who should have gone to hell, if God can save that old pervert Christian church member, church officer, if he can even save that devil, he can save you and he can save me. Amen. Somebody said to me, it doesn't seem right that he should be saved. It isn't fair, but that's what grace is all about. Grace is mercy even to people like that. It shows you the love of God. It's just as well you and I, my friend, were not the judge. But God is much better than we are. At least he's much better than I am. I don't know about you. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When a person, my friend, is in Christ Jesus, and this doesn't say there's no condemnation when you've got your name on the church roll and beaten your kids. It doesn't say that. That man was under the wrath of God. If he died before he came to these meetings, he would have woken up in hell. I'm telling you, he would have woken up in hell like every wife beater, every child beater, every child molester, unless they are found by Christ and redeemed, they're going to wake up and feel the fire. I'm telling you. The Bible talks about the wrath of Almighty God. But the Bible says that when a person is in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And when the, Paul uses the expression in Christ Jesus, he's referring to a close relationship to Christ, that our sins have been washed away and we are no longer condemned by the word of God or by the law of God. Notice verse 2. We've got so much to get through in this today. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Sin tells me that I've got to die. And the law points out sin. And the law can never save me. The commandments of God can never save me. But the law points out my sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the Bible tells me that when I come to Christ, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus sets me free from the law of sin and death. And I'm no longer condemned. Glory, hallelujah. Verse 3 and onwards, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. My friend, the law is and was and shall ever be 
utterly impotent to save the sinner. The law cannot save me. The law cannot make me righteous. That man that I spoke about a few moments ago knew the law. He studied his Sabbath school pamphlet. He knew it all. He knew all of the laws. He knew all the dietary restrictions. But the law was powerless. And the Bible says, when the law was powerless to save, because of my sinfulness, God did something. God intervened. And notice what God did. The Bible says, and this is the good news, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the spirit. The Bible tells me when everything was hopeless in this world, when man had destroyed himself because of sin, and the law was utterly impotent to save him, the Bible says that the Son of God arose with healing in his wings. The solution to the sin problem is not the law of God. The solution to the sin problem is the Son of God who comes and who makes an atonement for our sins on the cross. And he comes into our lives through the influence of the Holy Spirit. So the righteous requirements of the law can be fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And all this is by the marvelous grace of God. Thank God for Jesus and thank God for the grace of God. We're talking here today, my friend, about a real dynamic change in the life. Read on, would you please, with me in Romans chapter 8 and the next verses. Verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Let us make something tremendously plain today. The Bible is never opposed to the law of God. Uh, people read these texts about the law being impotent, and they say, there's something wrong with the law. My friend, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. The problem is with our sinful, guilty hearts. And the Bible says that if we continue in sin, and if we are controlled by the flesh, then the wages of sin is death. If that old man had continued on in his way of, his, of life, and I tell you, my friend, God forgives sin, but he doesn't change the consequences. His wife now is brain damaged. She is an old lady, he's an old man, she can never recover, but she's brain damaged. She's brain damaged because he beat her up so often. God cannot turn back the tide of consequences, but God can redeem the heart. Amen. And the Bible says the Spirit of God is prepared to come into our lives and to make us into new people. But I want to give a warning to every person today and to myself. If a person is controlled by the flesh and controlled by the sinful nature, he's going to die. 
And the Bible says this carnal mind is opposed to the law of God. When you hear people, my friend, who are attacking the law of God, including the fourth commandment, it is the carnal mind which is speaking. It is not the voice of the Spirit of God. Please read on with me in your Bible, please. Please read on with me. Verse 9 and onwards. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Let me talk about this for a moment. When you read these verses, it is very obvious that in a true born-again Christian, there is a conflict. And yet when we read the Bible, we read that Jesus won the victory at the cross, my friend. On Calvary, Jesus won the war. But I want to tell everybody here today, the battle goes on. Because in every person who is born again, there is the conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And the Bible says, if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I want you to ask yourself the searching question today. What spirit is controlling your life? In your home, in your work, with your wives, with your husbands, and with your children. What is the spirit that is controlling your life? I can think of an old minister over in Australia, Pastor W.M.R. Scragg. He was in a meeting with an elder of a church. And the, the church was split in two. And this elder had been an elder for 33 years, and the nominating committee had replaced him. <laughs> 33 years. And the church had continued to go downhill, and all this man could do was pour out venom, vitriol, hatred, and criticism because he had been replaced. Let me tell you, my friend, there is no fighting like you have in a church when people are not born again because there you have the devil at work, even more so than in the world. And I can remember when this old man was pouring out his criticism and his vitriol, Pastor Scragg said, Teddy, it appears to me you do not have the Spirit of Christ. It stopped him. And he quoted the text, if any man doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. I ask you today, what is the Spirit that is in your life? What is the Spirit that is in my life? Because the Bible tells me we will have one or two spirits. We will have either the Spirit of Christ or else we'll have the Spirit of the world. Now the Bible says, because we are all lost in Adam, our bodies are dead because of sin. But the Bible says, when Christ lives in you, even though your body may be decaying and dying, your body is going to live in the resurrection. And so this chapter is full of hope, even though it talks about the tremendous conflict, it is full of hope. Please read on with me in your Bible. Come back. To Romans chapter 8 with me and read on the following verses please in the word of the living God Romans chapter 8 and onwards uh, verse 12 let's start there therefore brothers we have an obligation 
but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. The Bible tells us, and it makes it ever so plain that we are to put to death the carnal nature. I, I've had good meaning Christians who do not understand the gospel, don't understand the book of Romans, come to me and they say, Pastor Carter, we've got to get out of Romans 7 with the conflict and we've got to get into Romans 8. Because in Romans 7, there is a conflict. Paul cries out, oh wretched man that I am. I've got good news for you today and bad news. The conflict is never over until Jesus comes. You don't get out of Romans 7 into, into Romans 8. The Romans 7 who is fighting sin can be in Romans 8 and not condemned. That's the good news. Even though a person is struggling against sin and even though sometimes he is cast down and even though sometimes he feels like giving up, he's not condemned if he's in Christ Jesus. Now the Bible says we are to mortify the deeds of the carnal nature. When? When? When I get out of bed in the morning? Well, maybe I need to do it then too. But I need to do it at the moment of temptation. When I am tempted, then I am to give my life into God's hands and to cry out for grace and mercy. A person who was almost a hero in my life was Pastor Archibald Heffron who taught me theology and public speaking and English. You know him, Steve. What a man he was. I can remember he's a great scholar, great Bible scholar, understood the gospel. He told the story because he had a fiery temper. He was born with it. He was working one day painting the ceiling of his house on a stepladder, had the can of paint on top of the stepladder. He climbed up and he was painting the ceiling with a roller and the telephone rang and as he got down the stepladder his leg got caught in the rope that held the ladder together and as he came down he fell down the stepladder and pulled the gallon of paint over himself. He said that was the time to die to the carnal nature. And he said, as the paint came over him, he had time only to shout out these words, Lord, keep me quiet. <laughs> Don't bother about dying to sin, my friend, when you're sleeping. Or when things are so peaceful, you die to sin at the moment of temptation when the paint comes down the ladder and you're covered with paint and you feel the anger come up inside you and you have to cry out, Lord, keep me quiet. That's when you die to sin. So the Bible here talks about this battle between the spiritual nature and the carnal nature. 
Would you like to know whether you're going to get to heaven or not? It depends on which nature is going to be the master of your life. If your carnal nature rules your life, like this old man before his conversion, before he came to this church, you're going to die eternally. But if the spiritual nature lives as it is doing so in his life now, you're going to have everlasting life. How can you know which nature is going to rule in your life? It's simple. The nature that is the strongest is going to win the battle. If your carnal nature is the strongest, it's going to win the battle. If the spiritual nature is the strongest, it's going to win the battle. You may have heard the illustration that I've used before that if I brought into this church two dogs, the same breed, the same size, two Alsatians, German shepherds, let them fight exactly the same size, which dog would win? Neither, because they're the strong, both as strong as each other. They just bruise each other, no dog would win. But if I took one dog and fed a good food and starved the other dog until one dog was starving to death, could hardly walk, and the other dog was in prime condition and let them fight, which dog would win? Strong one. How do I have a strong nature in my life? By feeding it. How do I feed the carnal nature? I can tell you. Look at porno movies, engage in criticism, feed on the world, look at a lot of television, that feeds the carnal nature. How can I have a spiritual nature? Read the Bible, go to church, say your prayers, read books like Desire of Ages, spend time with God. And as you spend time with God, so the spiritual nature will become the dominating force in your life. And that nature is going to rule. And those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Would you read on a little further now, please? Romans chapter 8. Let me get the verse for you. And verse, we're just touching on the high points because there's too much here. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now that tells you something. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That means the problems we have, the sorrows, the heartaches, they're not worth comparing. Uh, verse 19 says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. William Penn, who was born 1644, died 1718, who was one of the founders of America, said, no pain, no balm, no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. The Bible says that the Christian is called to endure sufferings. Uh, let me say a few words just for the sake of Igor sitting here today. He comes from a part of the world that has seen incredible sufferings. He's a Russian. He has suffered for Christ. I was talking to some of my dear friends this week, and uh, some of them said, you know, I could never go to Russia. I said, why not? They said, well, it's too hard to live there. Hotels aren't good enough. Uh, because it's too cold. I must say to my dear friends who said that, that's hardly the spirit of Jesus. Think what Jesus gave up for you. 
Jesus gave up glory, he gave up paradise, he came home to this, came down to this little hell hole and made it his home. And I have people who say, I won't go to Russia unless I can stay in a five-star Hilton hotel. You know what that's telling us? We really don't love Jesus. The Bible tells us that this lifetime, as a Christian, I must get used to suffering. I turn on some of the television programs and I hear the television preachers and they say, once you become a Christian, you're going to be immune to suffering. Over here in this country, Igor, they have what they call the secret rapture and they say the saints of God are raptured home and then the trouble starts. So they say the Christians, in other words, they're saying the Christians are such a, a weak bunch in this part of the world that God has to take them home or else they can never get saved. So he takes... Well, he should, have taken the, he should have taken the Russians before the sufferings. But you come from a part of the world where tens of millions have been battered to death. But Igor, you want to know this? Even people who suffered terribly in your country, one day when they wake up in glory, they're going to say the sufferings they went through are not worthy to be compared with the suffering, with the glory. Amen. The sufferings in Russia. The Russians are going to wake up in glory and they're going to look around and maybe some of the people who think that they're going to get there are not going to be there. But they're going to wake up in glory and they're going to think back on the dark days of Russia and they're going to say, I can't remember it. It's not worth comparing. So the Bible says, no cross, no crown. Let me read to you from this man. Robert Cromie said, the birthplace of Christianity was the tomb. The birthplace of splendor is desolation. Spring is conceived in the dark womb of winter. And light is inevitably the offspring of darkness. All this heaviness of night is surely but the prelude to a better dawn. The voice of God and the voice of nature proclaim that the best is yet to be. Always the best is yet to be. I want to say to the people who are watching this on Russian television that the best is yet to be. I want to say to the people watching this on American television, even if you're suffering from cancer and you're going through your own private little hell, the best is yet to be. The Bible says, the, this man said, the birthplace of Christianity was the tomb. The birthplace of splendor is desolation. Spring is conceived in the dark womb of winter. And uh, the greatest preacher, probably since the Apostle Paul, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, he was the great British preacher, he said, our best days are often our worst days. And in the darkness we see stars that we never saw in the light. Think of it. Our best days are often our worst days. And in the darkness we see stars that we never saw in the light. Please read on. Romans chapter 8. You know, there's so much you could talk about on this chapter. You could talk about suffering. You could talk about glory. There's a thousand different subjects here. Please read on with me. It says, come to verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now we have freedom today. Limited freedom. But the day is going to come when we're going to wake up in glory with unlimited freedom. There's going to be no sin, no carnal natures, no temptation, no devil, no heartache, no cancers, no pain, no insecurity. The greatest day is still coming. 
The Bible talks about the glorious freedom of the children of God. Verse 22 and onwards. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, this is interesting because it says the whole creation is groaning. Uh, this is talking about even the world of nature. The Bible says even the world of nature is groaning, waiting for the coming of Jesus. And it says even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we who are born again Christians, we groan. Now why do we groan? We groan because of the conflict with sin. We groan because we sense our weaknesses. We groan because we say, God, come and help me. We groan because of our mistakes. This doesn't sound to me as though the Apostle Paul believed in the doctrine of sinless perfectionism. Paul here is describing the condition of a Christian as he fights against sin, but is still considered to be an overcomer by the grace of God. Now verse 24, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We are saved by hope. We used to sing a great song, we have this hope. When everything is wrong in your life and you wonder how you can carry on, when everything seems black and I have days like that, I will confess it to you, there are days when I wonder how I can carry on. I wonder how can we continue this ministry? How can we carry the financial burden for Russia? How can we do this work? And you wonder, where are the helpers? Where are the people that you can depend upon? But there is one thing that buoys up our spirits, that is hope in God. We are saved by hope. When everything else is gone, there is God Bishop Fulton Sheen, one of my favorite speakers, said, evil may have its hour, but God will have his day. Amen. Evil may have its hour, but God will have his day. Because one day Jesus is going to come and we're going to have the glorious liberty of the sons of God. But until then the battle goes on. I'm talking to the man or the woman in this church, the frivolous person. The person who is shallow in his spirituality, who says, I don't know what he's talking about today. That's because you haven't come to Christ. I'm talking to the person who says, I have no conflict in my life. That is because you haven't come to Christ. A person who is not born again has no conflict. But when a person comes to Christ, then the battle rages. But the Bible tells us, as the battle rages, we are saved by hope. And we are saved by a mighty, gracious God who comes and who stands with us in our afflictions. Look at this. Please read on. 
Look at verse 26 again. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. I thought Christ interceded for me. The Bible says there's one God, one Father, there's one intercessor. The Father is the great almighty one. The Son is also the great almighty one. But the Son is my high priest and he intercedes for me. He intercedes for me before the Father. But the Bible says the Spirit of God intercedes for me. How and when? Before the throne of God? No. But in my heart. He intercedes in my heart with words and groans which cannot be uttered and I do not even know how to pray. The Bible tells me that I am so spiritually impotent that I don't even know how to say a right prayer but the Spirit of God comes and works inside me and even teaches me how to pray. You say to me, Pastor Carter, this doesn't seem to give a wonderfully glowing view of the Christian life. I turn on television and I read there that it's all up hype. Everything's great. We're always happy and things are tremendously successful. And one television man says, we can't even get sick anymore. Would you please pass me my glasses, he says, so I can read the text. This is true. He said, we don't get sick anymore. We're, and he goes like this, we're delivered now. He says, could I get my glasses? I can't see the text. And then the man said, put your hand on the television. And if you've got cancer, I'll heal you. But just recently, they put him in hospital for a massive heart operation. Because these people are not painting the biblical truth about Christianity. The Bible tells me that I am saved by the grace of God, but in myself I cannot be what I would like to be. I am saved by grace alone, and anything that I am or shall be or can do, it is by the grace of Christ who lives within me. See, I don't even know how to say a good prayer. I don't even know how to preach a good sermon. I don't even know sometimes how to raise the money for the campaign. But the Spirit helps us in our, in our infirmities. He intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And the text somewhere said, I, I, I think I rushed past it inadvertently, it says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Would you like to know the greatest proof of Christianity? The inner witness. If you are saved, then you'll know it. You'll know it. If you're going to heaven, you'll know it. The Bible says the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. John Wesley said, the inner witness, it is the greatest proof of Christianity. 
the Spirit himself bears witness. I have a spirit in me. It is my human spirit. And my human spirit reaches out and touches the divine spirit. And they unite together. And there is a harmony. And the spirit bears witness that I am a child of God. I want you to know today that even though I don't know how I ought to pray as I ought, even though I am struggling against sin, even though sometimes I am cast down, even though sometimes I do not know the way to go, I am going to heaven. Because the Spirit of God bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. Every person needs to have the inner witness. If you do not have the inner witness, it is because you have not yet been saved. But you can know today, through a miracle of God's grace, we are not talking human religion, we are talking the religion of God, whereby the Spirit of God bears witness with a human being and he knows that he can stand in the sight of a holy God through the merits of Christ and he is saved. Mm. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What a text. This talks about the purpose of God. When I read this text years ago, I used to think when it says all things work together for good, it meant all good things. But all bad things work together for good. And bad things that you and I do, God can use and does use those things for his glory. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This brings in the doctrine of predestination. And thanks, thank you, Lord, I'm running out of time, so I can't get into this subject, which I don't understand anyhow. Who understands? People say, we don't accept predestination. Well, you better accept something because it's mentioned here. I know one thing. God is the sovereign Lord and God calls people for certain functions and opportunities and works. I remember Robert Schuller, the Crystal Cathedral, who is by theology a Presbyterian, hence a Calvinist, who said, I have read everything that John Calvin said on predestination, and I don't understand a word of it. I will freely tell you, I believe in freedom of will, and I also believe in the sovereignty of God. And these seem to be mutually exclusive, but they can be justified and brought together in the mind of God. When I was a little boy, my mother wasn't a Christian. She had a conviction that I was to be a minister and an evangelist, and she dedicated me to God. I say to you, I am not here by my choice. I'm here because God sent me here. You hear this? That's why I have confidence to look you in the eye. 
That is why I have confidence to go back to Russia because God has written it in his book. God has got a purpose for your life and he's got a purpose for my life. And if you keep close to God, you don't have to care what people think about you. Therefore, verse 31, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Glory to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Pray with me. Dear Father, put this truth into our hard, sinful old hearts. That it is through Christ that we are saved alone by grace. If that scoundrel that I spoke about at the start of the sermon who beat up his wife, gave her brain damage, I don't even like praying about him, beat up his daughters, kicked them, if he can come to this church and get saved, Lord, it tells me that you're much better than I had ever dared to hope. Thank you for grace. But then, Lord, we're all like him in some ways. We've all been mean. We've all been cruel. We've all been unjust. And our prayer today is the prayer of the man who hung on the cross. Lord, remember me. We thank you that even though the war was won on the cross and the battle still goes on, that one day it's going to be glorious liberty. Going to be no sin, no tug, no temptation, no devil, no heartache. Oh God, help us to keep this hope in our hearts. Help us to know the inner witness that your spirit bears witness with our spirit. Our spirits that we are the children of God. May every person have this in this church today. Or may he go out of this meeting so troubled that he won't sleep for the next year. Until he gets it, and I mean it, Lord, smite those in this church today who are casual and who are cynical and who are so churchy that they can't see the way home to the kingdom. And give every person the inner witness of the Spirit of God. Thank you that all things work together for good. Thank you that even when good men do bad things, that God can turn those bad things into good events. Thank you that you can use 
good things, bad things, mediocre things to advance your cause because you have a plan. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we are stumbling and falling and fighting on and rising again, that because of Christ we are not condemned and there is no separation. And that nothing can separate the soul that hangs on Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh.